Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Before we get started, someone very special and close to me would like to say thank you for listening. Okay, go ahead and say hello. Say hello. Hello. Say I'm Tilden. And I want to say thank you. Thank you. For listening to Mommy's podcast. Do you tell them thank you for listening? Okay. All done. Thank you. The True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival will be held on August 25th through the 27th, 2023 in Austin, Texas. Join other ethical true crime podcasters, victim advocates, and paranormal creators for a weekend full of panels, roundtables, and live shows. Purchase your early bird tickets now at truecrimepodcastfestival.com slash tickets. Welcome, Crimes of Passion listeners. If you are just joining us because you heard the news that Crimes of Passion has ended, then I want to thank you for joining me here. I had the best time doing something I love, and while it wasn't a happy ending, I am so thankful I got to say goodbye to my listeners there. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for supporting me there, and hopefully you enjoy the narrative style of True Crime Cases with Lainey. Okay, enough of the business. On to the show. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to True Crime Cases. I'm your host, Lainey. Edinburgh, the capital of Scotland, is a deeply historied, beautiful, and vibrant city. It boasts cobbled streets and winding narrow stone staircases up steep hills, and has been home to one of, if not the largest festival for arts and culture in the world the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, since 1947. It's a place that draws people from the world over, whether it's to drink in the history and mythology of a city over a thousand years old, displayed through the pervasive Gothic architecture, the hilltop castle, and the deep, dark dungeons, whether it's for the esteemed university, ranked fourth out of all the universities in the United Kingdom, or the aforementioned Fringe Festival every August even if it's to peek at the street where Harry Potter was first written, the very place that inspired Diagon Alley, there are any number of reasons to add Edinburgh to a vacationer's bucket list. Yet, as all cities do, it has had its fair share of darkness throughout the centuries, from the very real horror that was the historical tendency to build over plague pits and banish its least desirable inhabitants to the seedy infection and vermin-infested underground vaults and then to the more sensationalized tales of grave robbers' broken hair, and the spawning of the folklore figure of Sonny Bean, leader of a cannibalistic cultish clan, the city of Edinburgh, both above and below, is supposedly haunted by all manner of ghosts and ghouls. Though much of this remains a distant memory and fodder for ghost stories, tourists, and local school children, Edinburgh does have its very own tragedies from more modern times. Even decades on, these events are still fresh in the minds of those who live there and throughout the rest of Scotland. The World's End Pub is located on the High Street, more commonly known as the Royal Mile, because it leads straight up to the castle. 
Its cobblestones have been tread on countless times as one of the main avenues for hosting or advertising fringe festival events and for the multitude of restaurants and pubs it hosts. The pub is so named because of the city walls which once surrounded the city of Edinburgh. Built in the 16th century to protect the inhabitants from the English, any number of historical or ghost tours can point out places where the wall once was or even partially still stands. The city was protected so fiercely that its inhabitants considered anything beyond their great walls and gate to be another world separate from their own. As such, for inhabitants of Edinburgh in centuries past, the gate allowing entry and egress from the city marked the world's end. And the location of this gate, now signaled only by gold markers on the cobbles, is right outside of the world's end pub. Hauntingly, for two young women in the prime of their lives during the fall of 1977, the world's end would cease to be a sign above the door that was purely historical and instead become an ill omen of their fast approaching fate. Okay, on to the show. Angus Robertson Sinclair was born in Glasgow's Rotten Row Maternity Hospital on June 7, 1945, to parents Angus and Mamie Sinclair. Angus Jr. had just barely escaped being born during the Second World War, which had ended in Europe only weeks prior, while his elder siblings, John and Connie, had both experienced the tail end of the war on the home front. The Sinclair family had lived in a tenement building in St. George's Cross since 1930, and it was a difficult time to raise a family in the city of Glasgow. It was polluted and overcrowded. Staunchly from working-class beginnings, with Mamie being the daughter of a coal miner and Angus Sr. working as a journeyman joiner, they did the best they could to make ends meet for their children. Their conditions would only worsen when in 1951, their father Angus died of chronic lymphatic leukemia, which he had contracted two years earlier. Mamie Sinclair believes the death of his father may have had such a strong negative impact on Angus Jr. that it affected his character and choices for the rest of his life. But that's putting the cart before the horse. It would be several more years before she had a real reason to fear for her youngest son, who was only six at the time of his father's death. Angus was bullied throughout his time at school starting from the age of five at Grove Street Primary and continuing until he left St. George's Road Secondary. He was made fun of for being small, awkward, and not particularly clever, and many in his school and neighborhood considered him odd. As his childhood neighbor Lawrence Cumming put it, he was a strange wee boy. Regardless, Sinclair wouldn't put up with this treatment for much longer, leaving school as soon as he legally could at 15 years old and getting the job of a van boy. Perhaps part of his oddness stemmed from Angus's propensity towards crime. When he was only 13 years old in 1959, he stole from a Glasgow church by taking money from its offertory box. He was given 12 months probation for this, but this wouldn't deter him, as the very same year he was also caught breaking into homes. From there, his behavior would only get more severely criminal and more violent. The same year he left school in 1960, he committed his first known indecent assault. The victim was an eight-year-old girl from the Calcadens area of Glasgow, 
and he received charges for lewd and libidinous practices for sexually assaulting her. As a result of this, he was given an additional three years probation on top of the previous year. Yet whatever this probation was supposed to achieve clearly was unsuccessful, as only six months after this initial assault, he would strike again. And this time, this poor little girl he targeted would not walk away like his previous survivor. Seven-year-old Catherine Rehill and her younger siblings were staying nearby with their aunt while their parents, Patrick and Vera, were away in London. The Rehill parents were scoping out a potential move and new life prospects for their young family. A report from the Scottish Herald said that the rest of Angus's family were away from home when he spotted Catherine skipping down the street and asked her to go to the shops and buy him a bar of chocolate. The little girl happily agreed, taking the money she was handed and doing as he asked. But when she returned to the flat to bring him his chocolate bar, Angus pinned her against the wall. He sexually assaulted Catherine before strangling her with the inner tube of a bicycle tire, leaving her with a bloodied nose and a heavily bruised forehead in the process. At one point during the attack, somebody knocked on the door to the Sinclair home. Investigators remark that he had the presence of mind to pause his assault on Catherine and answer the door to fob off whoever was there before returning to the assault. He then dumped Catherine's body in the close of the tenement building by the stairs. Just a listener note, in Scotland, a close usually refers to the private entryway shared by a group of flats, a passageway through which you can access the ground floor flats or the stairs to those on the higher floors. It's often enclosed by a gate or a door to prevent public access. So Angus abandoned Catherine in the close and waited until she was discovered. She was unconscious but still alive when two women spotted her on the basement steps as they left to go to bingo. At this point, Angus happened across the scene and offered to call an ambulance. During this phone call, he told the reporter that a wee girl had fallen down the stairs, a calculated attempt to stage Catherine's attack as an accident and cover up what he had done to her. Sadly, Catherine died in the ambulance en route to the hospital. Police weren't fooled by Angus's calculated play at being a good Samaritan. They immediately zeroed in on him as a suspect. Suspicion was only enhanced when they realized Angus had given them a false alibi for the time of the assault. They couldn't make any headway with interviewing him themselves, but enlisted the help of his older brother, John, and he was able to get the 16-year-old to admit to being responsible for the sexual assault and murder. He said it took him about half an hour to get Angus to confess, and when he did, he showed no signs of remorse. Angus Sinclair Jr. stood trial in the High Court in Edinburgh and pleaded guilty to culpable homicide. This charge is a near equivalent to manslaughter, the killing of a person in circumstances which are neither accidental nor justified, but where the wicked intent to kill or wicked recklessness required for murder is absent. In the process of his trial, he was examined by a psychiatrist who advised the charge be reduced due to a degree of diminished responsibility. This recommendation was made due to both Angus's young age and the abnormal way he acted following the discovery of Catherine's body. Though the psychiatrist did warn that he was a very dangerous sexual case that would likely continue to act on his violent impulses and repeat these offenses, Lord McIntosh, the judge who oversaw the proceedings, agreed with this judgment and said Sinclair was callous, cunning, and wicked during his sentencing. On August 25th, 
1961, August Sinclair Jr. was sentenced to only 10 years in prison for the murder of seven-year-old Catherine Rehill. He would only serve six of those years in the Edinburgh Sawton Prison before gaining his freedom in 1968. Angus had become a skilled tradesman during these years inside, building up the basic skills necessary to become a painter and decorator upon his release. In his final year of incarceration, he was allowed out on a day release. He quickly took up work as a painter once he was released at the age of 23. His mother, Mamie, stood by Angus, even though she felt she had to abandon the flat she had lived in for 30 years following his conviction. This was in complete contrast with his older brother, John, who cut him off from that day onwards, believing the remorseless teenager should rot in prison. Mamie, on the other hand, said that when she visited Angus in prison, he had said to her, Why did I do it, mother? Why did I do it? And told her he was sorry for what he had done to the Rehill family, as well as his own. Mamie had thought her son would feel the need to distance himself from the past, change his name, and emigrate to start up a new life. But he did neither of these things. His reluctance to make a fresh start with the help of his mother was perhaps an indication that his time in prison had changed nothing. At some point during the two years after his release, while working as a painter and decorator in Edinburgh, he met a trainee nurse named Sarah Hamilton, who was staying at the nurse's accommodation for Edinburgh's Eastern General Hospital. In 1970, when Angus was 25 and Sarah 20, the two married in Leith. His mother and sister were supportive of the pairing and attended the wedding, but John had disowned his younger brother as soon as he confessed to killing Catherine, so he wasn't present. However, someone who was in attendance was Sarah's brother, 15-year-old Gordon Hamilton, a name worth remembering for this case. Sarah didn't know why John did not attend the wedding and didn't find out about Catherine Rehill until they had already been married for years. Angus told her a sugar-coated version of events from the point of view of a young boy who had just made a mistake, and Sarah believed him since, understandably, she thought she could trust the man she married. Two years into their marriage, they were living in Glasgow, surrounded by family and even living with one of Sarah's brothers. It was then that Sarah and Sinclair had a son together, who they named Gary. At this point, according to the Scottish Herald, Sinclair started to become interested in photography, even setting up his own darkroom and bought an ice cream van for some extra income. I know what you're thinking. Angus Sinclair should not have been able to purchase and operate an ice cream truck. Surely some laws would have been in place to prevent that from happening, as Sinclair had been convicted for both sexually assaulting and murdering a child only 10 years earlier. Unfortunately, laws to prevent sex offenders from working with children would not be put in place in Scotland until 2003. Although, thankfully, in our research, it does not seem as though any of his crimes have been connected with the van. However, Angus was not satisfied with living a decent, mundane, and quiet life with his family. His criminal leanings had by no means disappeared, and he brutally mugged people for their money with no warning, and no chance to willingly give him their money. He just assaulted them, sometimes with weapons such as hammers and hatchets, and took whatever he wanted. He was also committing tax fraud, deciding to stop paying taxes and national insurance in the early 70s, despite having plenty of money to buy new cars. 
Now, this money was very likely supplemented by his aforementioned muggings and his habit of breaking into homes for similar reasons. According to Sarah in an interview for ITV's documentary, The Investigator, in 2018, Sinclair owned a caravanette or mini camper van and started going back and forth to Edinburgh every weekend, where he said he was going to do extra work painting and decorating. When he wasn't working, he would claim to be going on a fishing trip with Gordon Hamilton, Sarah's brother. And at times, this may have been true. At first, these explanations may have been a cover for one of the many affairs Sinclair carried out, and when caught, would promise Sarah he would never do it again. But of course, this was not all that Angus, or for that matter, Gordon, were doing in the time spent away from home. Much of the information in this part of the case is taken from a very thorough article written for the Scottish Herald in 2007. Unfortunately, due to the length of time that has passed, details about the victims in this case have been buried deeply under stories and articles focused purely on discussing the crimes committed against them. Please remember these were real people with personal lives and loved ones, deserving of happiness and health and not merely an afterthought. We will do our best to honor these victims as best we can. On the night of Friday, August 5th, 1977, 20-year-old brewery worker Anna Kenny and her friend Wilma Sutherland had been out at the hurdy-gurdy pub in Glasgow's townhead. They met and spent some time chatting with two young men, who kept them company until they left at closing time. One of the men offered to accompany Anna to her bus stop at George Square, and went with her when she accepted. When later questioned by police, the man reported Anna had changed her mind and gone to find a cab, so he left her to her own devices. As soon as she was out of eyesight, he said he heard a vehicle breaking and assumed she had successfully found a taxi, or even been given a ride by somebody she knew. And it was entirely possible given the small communities of Glasgow at the time. But Anna was never seen alive again. Her body was not found for almost two years, and when it was discovered, she had decomposed to nothing more than skeletal remains. The body was bound by the neck and ankles with a material that was later found to be the shirt she was wearing on the night she was last seen. Two shepherds stumbled across her remains buried in a shallow grave near a small village on the Kintyre Peninsula, which is a 140-mile drive from where she was last seen and near where Angus and Sarah Sinclair had spent their honeymoon. The hurdy-gurdy pub she had been drinking at was only a short walk away from where Sarah Sinclair's family lived on Sterling Road. Strangely, only a few months after Anna Kenny went missing, the last person to see her alive, Wilma Sutherland, married Sinclair's brother-in-law, Gordon Hamilton. Two months after Anna disappeared on Friday, October 1st, 1977, another woman would vanish. Hilda McGauley, 36, had been in the Plaza Ballroom in Glasgow and was last seen leaving for the night with a smartly dressed man. Her body was found the very next day, 16 miles away in Renfrewshire, by people picking brambles, more widely known as blackberries. Hilda was half-naked, badly beaten, and left lying in long grass opposite the entrance to the Westbury Caravan site, with her belongings and clothes strewn through the surrounding thorny bramble bushes. Her handbag, shoes, and coat were nowhere to be found. Hilda, who was a divorced mother, was survived by two young children. Two weeks later, 
two more young women would meet up in Edinburgh after work to go on a pub crawl. Their final stop, just before last orders, was an old pub on the Royal Mile, the World's End. And what happened that night would stop Edinburgh in its tracks. Helen Scott and Christine Eady were both 17 years old and had been friends since childhood, growing up together on the furrow side of Edinburgh. Helen was more shy and quiet, with Christine being the more outgoing of the two, and the pair balanced each other out perfectly. On the night of Saturday, October 15, 1977, they were out celebrating new jobs and potential futures with two other friends, Jacqueline and Tony when they made it to the World's End pub just before 11 p.m. The pub was absolutely crammed with around 200 people, and given how crowded it was and how soon the bar would be closing, Jacqueline and Tony decided to leave and head to a house party to carry on with their night. Helen, however, liked to be home to her parents by 11.30 p.m. at the latest and declined the invitation to continue the party, as did Christine. When they stepped out into the cold autumn night on the Royal Mile around 11.15 p.m., the two girls were approached by policeman John Rafferty, who paused to help out when Christine stumbled on the uneven cobblestones. He would later tell colleagues about an image that had haunted him in hindsight, seeing the young women interact with two male figures and disappear into the distance with them. It's unclear why they went with them. Some sources believe they were invited to a different party and decided to attend. Perhaps they were just offered a ride home by somebody who seemed to want to get them out of the cold and into safety. Regardless of the cause, John Rafferty would be the last innocent person to see Helen Scott and Christine Eady alive. Helen's parents, Morin and Margaret Scott, had been expecting her to return home at her usual time. Helen, who wanted to one day become a children's nurse, was responsible and reliable, and they knew they could trust her to come home. When she didn't show up that night, they went to bed trying not to worry. Maybe she had gone to a party or had decided to stay with one of the friends she had met up with. It was only when morning arrived with still no sign of Helen that they started to panic. The Scots realized both their daughter and her friend Christine were missing when they called Jacqueline and then Tony, and discovered that neither of them had been seen or heard from since they left the world's end the previous night. The police were notified and friends and family of the two teenagers arrived at the Scott home to wait together for any news. However, it wasn't the police who first provided any answers. It was a radio broadcast. A report went out that the body of a young woman had been found on Gosford Beach, about 15 miles east from Edinburgh city centre, by a couple taking a morning walk. Four hours later, another body was found about seven miles southeast from the first, on some farmland near the town of Haddington. The bodies belonged to Christine and Helen, respectively, and their family and friends were understandably distraught. No attempt had been made to conceal or hide either of the girls, and it was clear that they had been brutalized before their deaths. They had both been sexually assaulted, were naked, beaten, and had their underwear stuffed in their mouths, 
and were strangled to death with a mixture of twine and their own clothing. Their handbags and some of their clothes were also missing, presumably taken by whoever murdered them. Police instantly launched a manhunt, installing roadblocks and questioning any potential witnesses, such as people who had been drinking alongside Christine and Helen during their pub crawl the night before. However, with no leads to follow and very little forensic capability to help them move forward at this time, the investigation soon stalled. It would remain stalled for another 27 years, and more murders were yet to come, as although Christine and Helen may be the first well-known victims of Angus Sinclair Jr., they were not by any means the last. The next month in November, a 23-year-old children's nurse named Agnes Cooney spent her Friday afternoon looking at flats with her friend and fellow nurse, Gina Barclay. Afterwards, to unwind after a day of hard work, the two went out to the Clotta Social Club on the south side of Glasgow. After finishing her last drink around midnight, she said her goodbyes to Gina and began to head home. Just over 24 hours later, her body was discovered by a farmer near Caldercrooks. Her hands had been tied behind her back. She was sexually assaulted, tortured, and then stabbed 26 times. This would be the first of the murders the police would make a connection between. In less than two weeks, investigators publicly announced that they suspected Agnes's death to be linked with Hilda McAuley, the second victim in this timeline. The connection was made between the two women because they had both been tied up and disappeared when leaving entertainment venues late at night to return home. But still no culprit was unearthed during their investigations. It would be years before police discovered another link between the two. Both Agnes and Hilda lived within a mile of Angus Sinclair's place of residence in Daisy Street, Govanhill. Then, just under a year later, in November 1978, another 17-year-old would fall prey to the killer. Mary Gallagher, who was only 4 feet 11 inches tall, said goodbye to her mother, and left her home in Springburn in the north of Glasgow. The oldest of six siblings, Mary was granted more freedom than the others and was heading to her friend Isabel's house to meet up with Isabel and another friend. Isabel lived only a short distance away, on the other side of the railway. But Mary never made it to her house. Mary's mother Catherine was the last person to see her alive at 6.45 p.m. that Sunday night and Mary's body was discovered the following morning. Mary was found on waste ground near Barnhill Railway Station, barely a mile away from her home. The perpetrator had held a knife to her back and made her take off her clothes before attacking her. She was half-naked and had been strangled with the leg of her own trousers, sexually assaulted, and then her throat was cut at least twice. Her handbag was also found to be missing. Although Strathclyde police interviewed hundreds of men, they would make little to no progress in finding her killer. Mary Gallagher was the last known murder victim of this perpetrator, and something about her death had been different to the others. There had been a witness to her abduction. Some criminologists have suggested that it was potentially this witness that made the killer lie low and start looking for easier targets to prey on, moving on from young women. Children. Meanwhile, in 1979, Angus was sent to jail for six months due to illegal possession of a firearm for owning a 22 caliber revolver. At this time, his wife Sarah briefly left him before returning once he was released. But 
little did they know that this final period of freedom for Angus Sinclair was to be very short-lived. In four years, between 1978 and 1982, police were piecing together a spate of sex crimes against young girls across Glasgow. The perpetrator would hide in closes and landings, waiting for a victim to come along who he would then assault at knife point. It came to a head in the summer of 1982, when three girls were attacked in quick succession. The first was lured into a close in Govanhill, but realized she was in danger and escaped, screaming. Sadly, that same day, another girl, a seven-year-old in Partick, would not manage to escape her attacker and was sexually assaulted in a close. Later in that same month, a six-year-old girl was also assaulted in the Woodlands area, and despite her trauma, this brave little girl provided a crucial detail to the police, that the man who assaulted her was wearing shoes covered in green paint. With another of the victims recalling that her attacker smelled of turpentine, the police were able to narrow down the list of suspects to people who painted as their profession. Since Sinclair was already known to police for prior counts of theft and assault, as well as the sexual assault and murder of Catherine Rehill as a teenager, he was high on the list of suspects. When shown a photograph by the police, one of the girls was finally able to identify Angus Sinclair Jr. as the man who attacked her. His wife Sarah was present when the police arrived on the doorstep of their home on Craigflower Road to arrest Angus on three charges of rape and nine sexual assaults. She watched as he initially professed his innocence, saying, when he abused all of those children, he initially denied it to the police. I went to see him and I told him, you are going to admit what you've done. You're not going to drag us through a court case. Well, he did admit it to them. When asked by police how many girls he had attacked, he told both Sarah and police that he had lost count. Quote, I have done so many I can't remember all I have done. It might be 50. It might be 500. If you can find out where and when, I'll tell you whether I did them or not. On August 31, 1982, Angus Sinclair Jr. was convicted in the Edinburgh High Court for three charges of rape, seven charges of lewd and libidinous practices, and breach of the peace. His victims were all little girls aged between 6 and 14 years old. Especially horrifying for Sarah, as at the time, their own son, Gary, was 10 years old. In an interview for the BBC, one of Sinclair's victims, now a grown woman, told a reporter how he had lured her into his grasp. In an incident eerily reminiscent of his childhood murder of seven-year-old Catherine Rehill, the woman said, he asked if I could do him a favor and take his mum's change up to her, and told her where she would find his mum. Then he grabbed her, saying, Listen, I've got a knife, and if you don't do as you're told, then I'll kill you. Sinclair was sentenced to life in prison, and would never leave again except to attend court. Life sentences are not a common penalty for rape, but presiding judge Lord Cameron could not bring himself to give any other sentence telling the court, I have considered very carefully whether a limit should be placed on the extent of the penalty, and I have decided there is only one limit, namely, your life. Sarah took Gary out of school, wanting a clean break for her and her son, and the two moved away. They left the first home they had ever owned, needing to get away from the legacy Angus had left behind. Sarah cut contact with Angus immediately following his conviction, and forbade any contact between him and 10-year-old Gary. 
Strangely, however, Sarah never divorced her estranged husband. Speaking about this odd decision in 2007, she said, It's just a piece of paper. I don't have a bit of paper to say I'm divorced, and I don't have another bit of paper to say I'm remarried. I'm nothing. Although Gary had no contact with Angus from the age of 10, father and son would end up having one thing in common. In December 1994, 22-year-old Gary Sinclair left his army camp in Norfolk without permission for a night of heavy drinking with friends. An argument about a wallet led to Gary assaulting two Welsh guardsmen and fleeing the scene, where he was stumbled upon by 25-year-old Wayne Garwood, an amateur footballer. Also intoxicated, the two ended up getting into a fight, which ended with Garwood dead on the ground and Sinclair stripping his victim's clothes off his body as he was dying. The young man's body was not found for two days. Gary Sinclair was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison, just like his father. Gary served nearly 13 years of his life sentence before being released at some point in 2007. As of then, he was living in Dorset with his mother and her partner. To this day, he maintains the killing was an act of self-defense and that he had believed Garwood would get up and walk home as soon as he left. Angus Sinclair's only remaining family member who supported him, his mother Mamie, never accepted the truth about her son. She died aged 81 of a heart attack in 1987, five years into Sinclair's first life sentence. Thirteen years after the death of his mother, in 2000, Sinclair was preparing to be considered for parole when the rest of his crimes came crashing down on him in an instant. As part of a mass cold case review that began in 1997, the murder of Mary Gallagher was getting re-examined. Detective Chief Inspector Brian Murphy, who had led the renewed investigation, spoke of the effort that went into this review. He said, The original inquiry involved thousands of interviews with hundreds of statements, and they had to sort through dozens of cardboard boxes of evidence. They also interviewed 350 people, eventually deciding to re-examine a body hair taken from Mary's body during her post-mortem examination. An unusual decision, as this was a type of evidence that would not usually be looked at, which was what brought Angus to their attention for the first time in this case. With the advancement of DNA profiling since the time of Mary's death in 1978, they tested this body hair for a second time to see if new results could be discovered. The break in the case occurred when, during this analysis, they found a trace of DNA in semen from her attacker. When this result was run through the National DNA Database, it struck as a partial match for 200 potential culprits, one of whom was Angus Sinclair Jr., and because he was already incarcerated, investigators were able to get a mouth swab from him. The chances that any other person shared the same DNA profile as the one that was matched to Sinclair was a billion to one, and as such, investigators were sure as they could be that he was responsible for the murder. Although Sinclair claimed that his DNA was found on her body because they had had consensual sex, as a result of this investigation being reopened, Sinclair was finally charged with the murder of Mary Gallagher and in 2001, he was convicted for it in the Glasgow High Court. 23 years after her murder, it had finally been solved. He was given an additional life sentence with a punishment part of 15 years. Mary's mother lived to see justice for her daughter and left the court quietly once the sentence was announced. 
her brother and Mary's uncle, James Brown, who had been the one to identify his niece when she was first found, said, The family have never got over the tragedy. We are happy that this evil man has finally been brought to justice, but our pain and suffering is so deep it will never go away. Then, three years later, further technological advances led to another break in a cold case. Semen stains were found on the last remaining section of the coat of Helen Scott from Edinburgh, and because Sinclair's DNA was already on record from the Gallagher trial, investigators were able to conclusively link it to Sinclair's DNA, and that of one other man. This final piece of the puzzle fell into place in 2006, after detectives in London were successful in using ancestral DNA in another case. These detectives advised Scottish investigators to try to use the same method to try and figure out who the other man's DNA belonged to. This brought to the police a close familial match, which in turn revealed that Sinclair had likely had an accomplice for most, if not all, of the murders. His brother-in-law, Gordon Hamilton. Hamilton, who had married the last person to see one of his own victims, Anna Kenny, alive, He had died alone and impoverished with an alcohol addiction in a homeless shelter in 1966. He would never face punishment for any of his involvement in these crimes. And yet, these answers brought one more question. If Sinclair and possibly Hamilton had been responsible for at least one crime in both Edinburgh and Glasgow, had they carried out more? This was one of the questions that launched Operation Trinity, a joint Lothian and Scottish border-slash-Strathclyde police investigation looking into the unsolved Glasgow murders. The investigation involved scientists from the University of Glasgow looking into every murder that had taken place in Scotland since 1968. As a result, they discovered that out of more than 1,000 murders, only six had shared very specific characteristics. Victims had been bound and gagged with items of their own clothing, and had all been murdered within seven months of each other. This, they believed, was the unique signature of Sinclair and Hamilton, and strongly suggested they were responsible for all six crimes. Their suspicions would be further solidified when they contacted the FBI for a second opinion, getting in touch with Special Agent Mark Safarik. He was sent all the case information the police still had from 1977, and as a result, he felt very strongly that all of the murders had been committed by the same offender. Hamilton was also considered a suspect in the Dundee murders of Elizabeth McCabe and Carol Lannan as part of this investigation. At 20 and 18 respectively, the women were killed during a period of time between 1979 and 1980, where Sinclair was imprisoned, but Elizabeth in particular had been choked with her blue jumper. This led investigators to question whether Hamilton had continued to kill despite the absence of Sinclair. However, due to a lack of evidence and the earlier death of Hamilton, these theories can never be proven. With the unique signature of the murders and the backing of expert FBI testimony, the police now felt confident that they could go after Angus Sinclair, though Hamilton was beyond punishment and Sinclair was already serving life in prison they believed they could have him charged for all six of the murders. But there was a problem with this. Firstly, Strathclyde police had somehow managed to lose or accidentally destroyed all of the evidence collected from the murders in Glasgow. Secondly, 
you might notice I just said six when numbering the unsolved murders, when thus far we've only mentioned five murders if you discount the solved cases of Catherine Rehill and Mary Gallagher. This is because there are two final suspected victims in this case, though only one of them is believed to be a direct victim of Sinclair. The first, a woman who lived just 40 yards from Sinclair's residence at the time, and with whom he began his murderous spree. The second, the man who went to prison for her murder. City Bakery's employee Frances Barker was 37 on the night of Saturday, June 11, 1977. She had been out that night visiting family before she took a taxi home and was dropped off outside of her flat in Maryhill, Glasgow. She was not seen again until June 27, when her body was discovered beaten, bound, gagged, and partially clothed on a wooden lover's lane outside a small village in Lanarkshire. Frances was suspected to have been picked up and subsequently murdered by a curb crawler prowling for sex workers on Maryhill Road. Police were quick to act, and by October of the same year, they had their suspect on trial at the High Court in Glasgow, lorry driver Thomas Ross Young, a young man known for his violence and for frequenting sex workers. And although Young professed his innocence throughout the trial, it only took the jury an hour to return a guilty verdict. Young was sentenced to life in prison for a minimum of 30 years, at the time, the longest sentence ever to have been imposed by a Scottish judge. He remained in prison till he died in July 2014, age 79, having failed to appeal his conviction years earlier. Though it is possible that he was responsible for other crimes, as in 2007, he was charged with an additional murder from 1967. It was still, as his lawyer John McLeod said, a very serious miscarriage of justice that Young went to prison for a crime that the expert FBI profiler was almost certain had been carried out by Angus Sinclair who, if he had been caught at the time Young was charged, would have been prevented from raping and murdering six other women and sexually assaulting countless children. If Young had won his appeal, he would have been entitled to an enormous compensation sum for wrongful conviction, due to being one of Scotland's longest-serving inmates. Regardless, even in an additional appeal carried out posthumously, the appeal court judge upheld Young's conviction. So. Returning to Operation Trinity and the discoveries made in 2006, due to the difficulties police faced in finding concrete evidence of Sinclair being responsible for the Glasgow murders, since most of the original crime scene evidence had gone missing, the Crown decided to pursue justice against Sinclair purely for the world's end murders. It was at this time that Gary Sinclair decided to reach out to his father for the first time since he had been imprisoned. It was not a kind letter instead one begging him to plead guilty this time and not drag us through another trial like he had previously. The case went to trial in 2007 and only lasted for eight days, to the great frustration of law enforcement and the victim's families alike. Angus Sinclair had admitted to having sex with Scott and Edie, but claimed the acts were consensual between them, accusing Gordon Hamilton of committing the actual murders. The only evidence that directly tied Sinclair to either murder was a piece of twine which had traces of DNA on it, and was thought to have been used to bind or strangle one of the girls. But this evidence wasn't allowed to be used at the trial, because Sinclair's defense advocate found out that a key expert witness had not seen all of the relevant evidence. All these elements considered, Judge Clark came to rule that the prosecution had failed to provide enough evidence to prove their case 
The prosecution had not provided any proof that either woman had been abducted, raped, or robbed by Sinclair, and he could well have been telling the truth about having consensual sex with them. Clark decided he had no choice but to dismiss the jury and concluded there was no case to answer. Angus Sinclair Jr. was therefore acquitted for the murders of Helen Scott and Christine Eady. This might have been the final blow to ever receiving justice for Helen and Christine, but the result of this trial was a re-examination of Scottish law, namely that of double jeopardy. Double jeopardy laws ensure that someone who has been acquitted of a charge cannot be charged again for the same crime. These laws were originally intended to prevent law enforcement or public harassment of someone who had been declared not guilty by a court of law. Four years after the World's End trial fell through, an amendment was made to Scottish law and the Double Jeopardy Scotland Act of 2011 was enacted by the Scottish Parliament. This amendment meant that an accused party could face further prosecution for a crime they had previously been acquitted of, if compelling new evidence could be brought to light. The amendment began getting enforced in November of that same year. It was under these conditions that the High Court granted the Crown an application to retry Sinclair in March of 2014, due to advances in DNA analysis techniques. According to the Scotsman, cutting-edge technology revealed dark secrets about when, where, and how the two men's DNA could have been left on the girls' bodies and belongings. Placing Sinclair with the two girls not just during consensual sex, but during the periods where they were assaulted, murdered, and robbed. Sinclair was therefore brought back to trial on October 13, 2014, at the High Court in Livingston, becoming the first person in Scotland to stand trial a second time for the same crime. This time, the trial lasted five weeks, and on November 12, 2014, Angus Sinclair Jr., now at the age of 69, was convicted unanimously of the World's End murders. Helen Scott's brother Kevin, after witnessing Sinclair's conviction, said that the legacy of his sister and her friend was one of having changed Scotland's justice system for the better. Their father Morin, who promised his wife Margaret 25 years earlier on her deathbed that he would get justice for their daughter. At 84 years old, his promise was fulfilled. During sentencing, Lord Matthew said, quote, I do not intend to waste many words on you. You are well aware that the only sentence I can pass is one of life. In doing so, he sentenced Sinclair to 37 years in prison, the same amount of time that had passed since the deaths of Helen and Christine, and the same length of time their families and friends had been left without justice. Sinclair's defense team later filed an appeal under multiple grounds, including the claim that the punishment part of 37 years was excessive based on punishments afforded to comparable cases, and that the judge had erroneously taken into consideration previous charges based on his comments during sentencing calling Angus Sinclair Jr. a dangerous predator. The appeal was thrown out due to lack of merit. Angus Robertson Sinclair Jr. died in a prison hospital in the middle of the night in March of 2019, having spent more than half of his life incarcerated for his multitude of crimes. To this day, no one has ever been charged with the murders of the Glasgow victims Agnes Cooney, Hilda McGauley, or Anna Kenny. Sarah, Sinclair's wife, believes them to be responsible for these crimes after being taken to the sites where the women were last seen and their bodies found. Former detective Alan Jones believes Sinclair should have been charged for all six of the murders, not just those of the world's end. 
former Deputy Chief Constable of Lothian Police, Tom Wood, who also spearheaded Operation Trinity, is in agreement. He said of Sinclair, I believe there are probably many, many more crimes he has committed, and we will probably never know. It is therefore a bittersweet triumph with which we repeat what Scotland's senior prosecutor, Lord Advocate Frank Mulholland, said during the World's End trial. Thankfully, justice has no sell-by date in Scotland. Okay, listeners, thank you for joining me this episode as we file away another true crime case. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, please review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can follow us on social media, Twitter at truecrime underscore cases, facebook.com slash truecrimecaseswlaney, and Instagram at truecrimecases with Laney. Our website is truecrimecasespodcast.com, and we would love to hear your episode suggestions, so send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched, written, and edited by Jesse Hawk. Content editing by Laney Hobbs, for once. Audio engineering produced by the best in the business, Neeks, at We Talk of Dreams. Check them out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com. And with this, we wish you a happy holidays and we'll see you back in the new year for our January 15th episode. Thank you again for your support, and I hope you enjoy the holidays. <laughs>